Hello. This week, BBC Verify was launched. Transparency in action, as described by Deborah Turness, the new CEO of BBC News. It's a feature aiming to build audience trust by showing how its journalists know what they're reporting is true. Where trust has been rather more lacking, indeed it's almost totally lacking, is in BBC Local Radio, where long-standing presenters are bidding farewells. BBC management and staff are still miles apart, and a 48-hour strike is scheduled for early June. Where trust is also essential is when it concerns the broadcasting regulator, whose job is to ensure that Parliament's wishes are carried out and that broadcast journalism is fair and impartial. But is it doing its job? Someone who has real concerns is Stuart Purvis, probably the preeminent broadcast news journalist of his time. A former editor of Channel 4 News, he went on to become ITN's chief executive and then the poacher termed gamekeeper. The now Professor Purvis served as one of the content regulators at Ofcom and oversaw standards cases involving the BBC between 2007 and 2010. In 2015, he was a member of the BBC Charter Review Advisory Group and has been a non-executive director of Channel 4, among many, many other things, including being a director of Brentford Football Club. Years of glory! He stood down earlier this year. Well, welcome to the podcast, Stuart Purvis, and congratulations on the amazing success of your football team. Is this the most important thing in your life now? It, it certainly, while I was director for four years recently, it completely took over my life, yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons I stood down in the end was actually I just wanted to get my life back. But w- what a fantastic four years, all the way from the middle of the uh, the second tier of, of British football up to the, the top half of the first tier of British football. Fantastic. Well, if you have any spare time and you'd like to advise Carlisle United, I would be grateful. <laughs> but um, to the business in hand, which is, of course, uh, what we've spent, and you particularly spent your life at, uh, broadcasting news and impartiality and so on. Um, but the basic question a lot of people ask, a lot of Tories say to me, is that the, t- the need for regulation is passed in news terms. You know, when we've talked to people like Charles Moore and so on, they do not understand why we still need, well, significant regulation. What, as a former regulator, what's your answer to that? Well, we uh, broadcasters are, or were, given a unique way of broadcasting to the, to the British public, and in return they took on certain duties, and one was to provide uh, a balanced report of the news of the day. Now, the honest truth is that the BBC never actually formally signed up to impartiality till about the 1980s. Up until then, it seems to me the BBC's history was trying to avoid political controversy. That's certainly what I found in the BBC archive. But undoubtedly, from the launch of ITV in 1955, uh, the growth of Channel 4, Channel 5, and, and indeed the growth of commercial radio, it became a mainstay of public service broadcasting that you would try to uh, provide a balanced view. Now, what is balanced? Is it measured by time? Is it measured by significance? One could argue about that. That's why the phrase due impact partiality was put into statute. Therefore, there's a sort of extra context that's provided. But public service broadcasters have provided it. And the people who are criticising uh, regulation are basically relying on the public service broadcasters to provide that core product and wanting to licence, if you like, other broadcasters not to have to observe that. And that seems to me to be wrong. Well, they're suggesting, in a way, you have one, so you can do the other. The BBC can, yeah. and ITV and, well, can do all the impartial stuff, 
and then we should be free to do whatever we want. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, the disturbing thing, Roger, is that the chief executive of Ofcom, Melanie Dawes, almost said that uh, in the House of Commons quite recently to, to a select committee. She said, we are always thinking about freedom of expression here and we do not want to see just a single monocultural and mono-representation of views on British TV. Well, if that's what she thinks public service broadcasting has been, yeah. then I kind of really worry that she's in, that she's in charge of it. Well, it certainly wasn't, didn't feel that way when he looked at Channel 4 News, or he looked at ITN, he looked at BBC on Newsnight. You felt you got a wide range of things. But what he did think was actually, if they say this is a fact as opposed to his opinion, somebody else will check that that's so. And if it's not the case, they'll be found out. Whereas with a lot of these new networks, which are very stimulating in some ways in the views that they express, you do not know what's fact, what isn't, what's distortion, what isn't. And you're absolutely then dependent on the regulator... Uh, picking up, if you like. Now, if you to defend Ofcom, if, if this is a defence, they picked up on Mark Stain, something he did for GB News, uh, when he was, in the view of, well, the view of Ofcom, peddling effectively conspiracy theories about COVID. But it took them a year to do that. I, you're a former member of Ofcom. How can it take a year when you have such an obvious offence? Well, that's that's a good and a fair question. And as the person who used to oversee the, the publication of the broadcast bulletin, which is the kind of decision list of Ofcom, it was often of a frustration to me at times. But Ofcom is very, very process-minded and wants everyone to have the chance to have their say on everything. A number of times the lawyers need to get involved a number of times. The only exception, I have to say, that was when there was a general election campaign when somehow miraculously we could come to decisions in days because if we didn't make a decision quickly, then it was going to be all a bit irrelevant. But on, I mean, in my, I was involved in a, a, a case involving the, the, the award of the, uh, of, of the successful winners of the British Comedy Awards, which took me nearly two years to bring to a conclusion because of the legal processes involved. But some things are pretty obvious. Let's take on GB News, for example, the fact that a husband and wife pair of Conservative MPs, um, Philip Davis, Nesta McVeigh, conduct interviews, and indeed in one case interviewed the Chancellor, from their party, of course, about the budget. Now, it's difficult for me from the outside to say how on earth could anybody regard them as being impartial when they're about to vote on the very budget that he, they are interviewing him about. Yes, well, the the history of politicians and MPs in particular presenting political programmes uh, goes like this. When I was at ITN, we produced for Channel 4 a programme called Powerhouse, which was a daily politics programme at lunchtime. And that was occasionally presented by politicians. Uh, and we agreed with the regulator at the time, the ITC, that you know, one week it would be one party, the next week it would be the other. We'd only do it a few times a year. So it, it's not unprecedented for doing it. What is unprecedented is for having a daily program where a MP, who's actually only just left a cabinet in the case of Jacob, Jacob Rees-Mogg, or the, the case you point to where MPs are actually questioning the, the Chancellor just before the budget, to do that in what a channel that's called GB News. And, and if you get down into the kind of regulatory nitty-gritty of this, you find that that is not allowed to happen in a news programme, but Ofcom has decided that these programmes we're talking about are not news programmes, they are current affairs programmes. Now, gosh, you're, you're the doyen of current affairs, but, I mean, nowhere actually in the Ofcom code does it say that 
what Ofcom has done is to redefine a news program. And it hasn't actually done it in a very public way by having a consultation or openly changing the guidance. It's done it, I have to say, it was a former Ofcom executive, slightly by stealth. So this is so. This is something of real public importance that at the very least ought to be debated in Parliament and a range of views put and so on. And you're saying it actually it's effectively been smuggled through. Well, I think under pressure, actually from MPs, Ofcom has been forced to explain how these programmes that come about, the one you mentioned and about the, sort of the daily Jacob Rees mod programme. And they say uh, that a news programme is effectively a news bulletin. Now, the guidance to their code still says that a news program can include a daily news magazine. So you get into a kind of, you know, terminology on what is the difference between a daily news magazine and a current affairs program. But the, the, you, one could argue about that fact. But this ruling effectively came out of a political controversy. It did not result from Ofcom going through a process of saying, look, we think it's time to change the definition of a news program in this way. It didn't do that. It did this in this sort of retrofitting way almost of saying, oh, all this stuff that's going on in GB News that people are getting worked up about, this is why we're allowing it, because we've redefined what a news program is. So are you, I mean, this raises the question to my mind, you make obviously the case that this should be debated in public and there should be an opportunity for people to argue about it, but it, it does indicate that those running Ofcom seem to have a remarkable amount of latitude to determine, uh, to interpret things. And then you start to look at who is running it, and there's Michael Grade, who we know for a long time past, and indeed when you were doing Channel 4 News, you would be working to him. We all like and admire him in many ways, but became a Conservative peer, was put into that job by Nadine Doris, and you are, you know, if they've got that much latitude, you know where he's coming from. And so one does begin to wonder whether Ofcom itself is too much affected by whichever government happens to be in power. Yeah, one is always right to look at Ofcom through the lens of how people are appointed, how the chair is appointed, how the chair appoints the chief executive. My experience was at the time that I was working at Ofcom, we're talking about 2007 to 2010, was that I was incredibly impressed by the people I worked with. I was, I mean, so I've, I've worked in the university sector as well, and people would say, what was the best university you ever taught at? And I'd say, actually, it was Ofcom, because they were absolutely minded to do the right thing by the public. But it was always difficult, the relationship between the communications regular eight and the government of the day was always, always had stresses and strains. And I, I, I was responsible for a couple of rulings which certainly the Labour government at the time didn't like. I was involved in certain issues which the, 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 the coalition government that followed didn't like. There are some things Ofcom does which simply the government tells them to do. And there's nothing wrong in that. It's about the, you know, it's about uh, in following up policy decisions made by the government. But there are other things where Ofcom needs to stand aside from the government. And my concern about their decisions on GB News is if you look at that quote I gave from Melanie Dawes, that looks like a policy decision that we are, we, the British government and Ofcom are going to change the approach on British television to impartiality. 
And when you look at, of course, who runs these new companies, uh, you know, one notices that uh, the owner of GB News uh, was Sir Paul Marshall, who voted leave. He's a Conservative donor. He took over, of course, after Andrew Neil resigned, um, unhappy with the way the direction things were going. Um, you look at and you say, well, maybe that doesn't matter. And then you look at LBC and you think, well, there's actually a lot of opinionated programming, but it's... There are different, there are a range of voices there. And LBC makes that distinction between news and comment. And it makes sure it has a range of comment. Um, so you would presumably be happy with what LBC is doing. Yes, I'm very happy. In fact, I, I was once for a time uh, partly responsible for LBC and, and, and in fact, uh, helped appoint Nick Ferrari. And Nick does take a oh, he's brilliant. You know, pretty, yeah, brilliant. pretty yeah. much a, 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 a pro-Brexit line. And James O'Brien, who follows him, takes a very, very, very anti-Brexit line. And that's, that's a different way of uh, achieving balance. But it's interesting, Roger, that you, you raise the ownership of GB News. Because there is a, an Ofcom uh, guide, it's more than a guidance, it's actually a rule. Programs must exclude all expressions of the views and opinions of the person providing the service. Now, that was put into place to stop owners of channels using the channels as, if you like, their mouthpiece. Now, I'm very carefully going to say that I am not accusing Sir Paul Marshall of uh, using his channel as a mouthpiece for his views. But I cannot but not point out that Sir Paul was a major donor to Vote Leave, is a major donor to the Conservative Party, that last year GB News lost uh, £30 million on revenue of £3 million. Basically, what happened at GB News is that there were a range of opening investors, including uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, which is a pretty major broadcaster. After the losses of the first year, all the professional broadcaster investors uh, exited, and it is now being funded by an investment from Sir Paul Marshall himself uh, and something called Legatum Ventures of Dubai. Now, It seems to me an interesting situation where a channel which is heavily loss-making is being funded by somebody who has very clear views, which it appears happen to coincide with the views which are expressed on that channel. So I I point to that as an interesting development and one I cannot think has happened before in British television. Because the presenters, Esther McVeigh, for example, uh, we're talking about our, Brex- our uh, Brexiteers and, of course, Conservative MPs. Yes, I mean, when some people may think this is um, relatively mild compared to the United States, but I wonder how shocked you were when you read in the evidence that uh, Fox had to reveal when there was being sued by an opinion poll company in the state, which revealed that the senior management, including Rupert Murdoch, and the major presenters of Fox, uh, had no doubts that Joe Biden had won the election, had no doubts there was no little of, no real evidence at all of cheating in the polls, but were going on air saying the opposite, because if they did not do so, their business was threatened, listeners, viewers would go away. So they knew what they were doing. They knew what the truth was, and they didn't. Uh, uh, the threat to profits was too great for them to allow the truth to be told. I mean, I, I was, I may have suspected that, but I was truly shocked by that. And of course, that's a society which doesn't have a regulator in the same way, and it doesn't have, you know, a BBC or ITV or Channel Four News. Although there are some good news programs, were you truly shocked by that? 
I was like you. It, it was breathtaking to actually see that set out in cold print coming from presenters and executives. And at one point, one of the presenters says, look what this is doing to the share price. I, and I could never have imagined a presenter of a TV programme worried about doing the right thing on the air uh, because it might damage the share price. I mean, it is quite exciting. And, and it's, a, it's a warning lesson where 70%, I think, or maybe 60% of Republican voters uh, still believe uh, that Donald Trump won the election. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so after all the information, and because they're in echo chambers, aren't they? I mean, it's it's a this we're, we're we we have the good fortune to hear to see what a future might be and have enough time to make sure it doesn't happen in this area. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's the, the best way of summarising it. I think we need to give constant scrutiny to what's going on, whilst accepting that there is a long-term trend towards greater freedom of expression. Now, if that sounds a contradiction from what we're saying of, of warning of the dangers of ahead, I think it also partly explains where Ofcom is coming from. Ofcom's lawyers are always concerned that Ofcom's decision should honour the spirit of Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which uh, upholds freedom of expression. And they have always concerned when any uh, decision on content by Ofcom might appear to breach uh, citizens' rights to freedom of expression. I, I found this most strikingly when I was an Ofcom executive and there was a case of a radio presenter who called one of his guests a fascist on the air. Um, and we investigated this and found this, we believe, to be a, a, a breach uh, of, of our rules. Uh, the presenter in case wanted to take it to court um, and I was advised by the lawyers that we should not fight this in court because he would win because he would uh, cite Article 10. Uh, I went to the then chief executive of Com, uh, Ed Richards, and I have to say to his credit, he uh, upheld my view that we should fight uh, in the courts and we won in the courts. So there are moments where you feel you just have to do the right thing here. And I believe that's what we did here. But I am well aware of the pressure within Ofcom from the lawyers that Article 10 seems in their view to present to them regulating content. But surely there's a distinction here between freedom of opinion based upon verifiable facts and debates which are based on alternative truths, to use a certain uh, Trumpian phrase. In other words, there has to be some ruling which uh, the audience has to know, OK, what your opinion is, fine, where you're coming from, but it has to know that the facts that you put forward in your arguments can be substantiated. And if nobody can, can, can be sitting on top of the facts as opposed to the opinions, we're lost, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, when I'm often asked about the definition of, of impartiality, I, I say, OK, if, if you define it as don't take sides, that doesn't mean don't go for the truth. If you, you should go for the truth, uh, and if you have the evidence and the facts to prove it, then you should state that. But your opening, uh, your opening a p a position should not be to take sides. No, I'm always struck by the fact that the BBC, in my experience, when elections were on, just wanted on the whole to get through it and, you know, would say, well, X says X, Y says Y, and, and bang. And you feel, you know, to use that cliche I've used frequently, if someone said it was daytime, one said it was night, the presenter wouldn't turn around, look what it was, and take as it were. Size, yeah. but I also thought, you know, when... When Ken Livingstone, three or four years back, was talking about Hitler, you know, being a Zionist until he went mad, 
And you thought, don't just do an interview with somebody who disagrees with him. Just point out that Mein Kampf was first published in 1925, second edition 1926. It's all laid out there, really. And you just want reporters, and you must have wanted reporters when you were in charge, not to to be fair, but it's due impartiality, as you say, and to call things out when they are wrong. Yeah. And I, we worry, the other thing I worry about this is that, is that journalism lose their nerve in some way. Mind you, having said all of that, there's so much strong journalism coming from a range of areas. But let, me, let me just take you back, if I may, though, um, to where you began. Well, not quite where you began, but you were in local radio in Exeter. No, you were in local paper in Exeter, weren't you, while you were working there? Your first experience was in a local paper. And I wondered what you thought about the crisis which many people feel there is in local journalism at the moment, how serious it is and why it matters. Yeah, while I was a student at Exeter University, I spent every Friday working for a local news agency, actually, uh, as opposed to a newspaper. And this agency sold stories to uh, national newspapers, magazines, TV, radio. It, It was a business. And I have to say, it was a pretty uh, tough introduction to journalism. Uh, What I realized immediately was that in the printed world and newspapers of the time, particularly tabloids that we were selling to, truth was not an issue. Basically, we would invent uh, stories. In fact, I was involved, much to my detriment, in an extraordinary saga called the, the Donald Crowhurst Journey. I don't know if you remember this. This was a... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So many times it had to be exposed to a man who sailed around the world while well, he actually didn't do it. And as he got closer to this country, having taken a variety of shortcuts, actually just turned around and came back, didn't he? He began to realise he would be found out. And then he committed suicide. That's right. Well, the agency I worked for was his spokesman. And what would happen is that the organisers of the race would ring once a week to get his position. Um, and for the first, you know, few weeks, he, he would call in with his position. And then he didn't call in. Uh, and the head of the company decided that we would invent his position. Uh, now, we weren't very nautically minded. And we began giving positions that were decidedly erratic. Of course, only later did we realise that the reason he wasn't giving us a position was because he was pretending to sail around the world when he didn't. And, of course, we were extremely embarrassed when it came out that, you know, he had never say, sailed around the world at all. But I, I you know, I was, I was shocked and, and appalled by what I'd been involved in. But it actually was a really good lesson for me in don't mess with the truth. Don't invent things. You will get found out. But look at the situation today with the BBC closing down some of its local programmes. It, it says it's transferring the, the, transferring resources to digital. That's a big dispute going on and strikes, as we know. But we can also see that local newspapers folding up. There are odd you know, news agencies setting up in particular areas. But if you're talking about what public service is in the future, would you say that a focus on powerful local journalism was something where, A, the market has failed, and therefore there's a, a reason to look at the... Uh, 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 the public uh, for a public intervention in the area. Yes, very much so. And, and one of the pieces of work at Ofcom that I'm, I'm proudest of is, is work we did on, on local news and its importance, 
not just to local communities, but actually the, the, the provision of local news to national news organisations is a, is a crucial element of, of, of public service uh, reporting. And, and what we argued for then was some form of intervention, and that came in the effectively the fund which the BBC operates for local democracy reporters. And that, I think, has had some positive impact in, in local areas in holding local councils to, a, to, to account for what the decisions they make when quite often there wouldn't be a reporter in the council chamber if it wasn't for the reporter which the BBC is paying for on behalf of local media as a whole and indeed national media. So I'm a strong supporter of that scheme. I think it could be extended. And if it hadn't happened, I, I, I wonder if there would have been more and more councils making decisions that we never knew about and should have known about. Well, when we look at the BBC in, in, in general, where it is now, most people think it's well run in business terms. Indeed, it's, some think it's overstuffed at the top in business terms. It's creating a future or planning for a future without the licence fee. What it is not doing, if you listen to Baroness Stowell and quite a number of other people, and I suspect Tony Hall I'm going to talk to next week, I think, um, what it's not doing is, is have, outlining a vision of public service broadcasting and then saying the role that the BBC should play within that, but defining it first. And also what it isn't doing, because it doesn't have to do it. Whereas it, if it opened new services, it would have to get, I think, Ofcom's agreement. It can shut down services or whatever uh, without wider public agreement. And so we're now in a situation for the first time where a handful of people are making decisions that fundamental, fundamentally hap, affect the ecology of this country. And we all have different priorities, but there's not much of a debate going on about that. Would you put news at the heart of what the BBC should be doing and therefore raise a question mark about whether it has been given sufficient priority in terms of the monies allocated from you know, BBC under great financial pressure? Yes, uh, I absolutely would. And I have always argued for, for greater and greater transparency about the costs of various genres uh, within the BBC budget. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the so-called salami slicing, which has taken place in recent years, has led to BBC News um, being cut too far in certain places compared to some of the increased investment in, for instance, drama. Now, I think that the BBC op occupies uh, not a unique place in the news uh, environment for, 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 for the whole fact that I spent pretty much half a century trying to help people compete with the BBC. But I, I do think that there's a matter for public debate about how the BBC spends its budget between these various important um, roles that it has. And I, I perfectly take that support of, of drama, that uh, the role of entertainment, uh, is, are, these are all important roles of the BBC. But I just think the role of BBC News is above those. And you mentioned the debate it isn't happening largely. Uh, this is what I find increasingly frustrating. I talk to quite a lot of uh, former BBC executives, a bit scared to talk, and then they, they appreciate Tim. Tim has got a very tough job and so on, and they, they feel conflicting loyalties. Elsewhere, uh, there isn't a conversation. So when, for example, the BBC takes uh, proposes these cuts in uh, classical music, which it's deferred, there will still be some, but it's deferred, for example, the ending of BBC Singers, they appeared not to know at the top of the BBC the role that uh, BBC played in classical music throughout the country. In other words, you take this stone away and you're not just affecting the BBC, you're affecting 
the classical music in the country as a whole. The BBC, in other words, in many ways, is too important to be left to those who run it at the moment. They belong belongs to the public. And when we're talking about these sort of priorities, there needs to be a public debate, but largely about what public service is and the best way to deliver it and how much we should pay for it. But that debate is, seems to be not really there yet. I wonder why you think that is and how you would bring it about. Well, I suppose... Possibly because, first of all, I, I would agree that there isn't enough debate, but the starting point probably is the control which the government of the day has over the funding of the BBC. And so, you know, the, the infamous, I deliberately use the word infamous deal, which, which, which Tony, Tony Hall did with the coalition government, although I'm not sure how much the Liberal Democrats knew about it, which has effectively been reducing the BBC's income. Now, the, the, what's therefore the debate then becomes, oh, you know, how are you going to make the cuts? rather than let's go back to first principles and decide what matters out of all this. And I, I'm just not convinced that that has happened in the case, for instance, of the, the merging of the BBC News Channel with, with the BBC World News Channel. I mean, I find it extraordinary that the, what it what likes to think of itself as the biggest broadcast news operation in the world, which is pretty much what the BBC says it is, cannot manage to produce a UK uh, news channel of its own without merging it with something else. I mean, uh, if Sky News can do that, uh, how come the BBC can't? And we haven't really had an answer to that question. It's just, well, the cuts have got to be made. Well, you talked about that infamous deal, and I think it was done at the weekend with uh, uh, George Osborne. And, and, and Tony is one of, it, Tony's a pragmatist, and he thought he got the best deal. But are you suggesting that actually uh, there should have been a wider public debate there, and he shouldn't have done the deal? He should say, look, this is what, this is, what is at stake. Uh, there needs to be a wider debate. It's not for me, just as a DD, to do, as it were, close the best deal I can in the circumstances. Well, I think, uh, you know, his, his predecessor did exactly that. Well, he did. What he did is said, I'm not going to do a deal, uh, for instance, over, uh, over various things. Um, you know, you, you'll have to, I'll, I'll resign and we'll create a storm. That was Mark Thompson, yeah. Mark Thompson, yes, of course. Uh, uh, Tony being, as you say, a bit more of a practicist, thought it, it was a, a good deal to do, but it, it, it just turns out that it, that it wasn't. But it, I mean, I mean, my sort of further evidence to this, uh, this argument, uh, Roger, is that, uh, slightly to my surprise, um, the government asked me the, uh, when the BBC Charter review came up to be a member of the advisory panel. Um, and basically we were, I think, described by Lord Patton as the, uh, assistant grave diggers or something. Well, it didn't quite work out that way because some of us were truly shocked to find well, maybe we shouldn't have been shocked to find that even though the BBC's finances had effectively been cut by the Osborne deal, or if they can even call it a deal, the Osborne decision, the, the Conservative government was coming back for more, if you like. That they were, and that, to, if anything, they were frustrated. They'd had such a big chunk out of the BBC already that there wasn't much more to take out. So I, I saw at first hand the animosity there was between... Uh, the Conservative Party and the BBC uh, and did my best to, to sort of, uh, from a sort of slightly uh, minor position in the whole story, uh, put up a bit of a defence. And I, I think, uh, you know, we did achieve some success in, in preventing even more damage being done to the BBC in that charter review. 
But do you accept the case that we can't go on like this, well, we shouldn't go on like this, there needs to be a wider public debate about what public service is, the role, for example, of news within it, and then we should take decisions about who provides it and how they pay for it. We can't just be an argument about should the last week go up or down or stop being frozen or whatever. It's too important for it just to be about the, the means of payment. It should be about what actually we're paying for. Yes, and, and um, I mean, you know, my, one of my other interests in recent times has been has been Channel Four, uh, and there, I mean, the whole fake debate about the future of Channel Four and privatisation was it was you know completely ridiculous in the sense that the the rationale for why, in, in the government's view, Channel Four needed to be privatised would change every time they came back to it. And the most recent one was, uh, you know, the streamers. Uh, you know, uh, Netflix and, and, and Amazon would mean that Channel 4 would have to be privatised. The logic of that was never explained. And if anything, uh, the public service broadcasters have, have robustly not seen off the challenge from the streamers because it's still a, a day-to-day challenge. But they've, they've put a pretty good battle up against the streamers without the need, for instance, for Channel 4 to be privatised. Yeah, I think I can't remember the exact figures, but I think with all the stakeholders and others who sent in their uh, views about whether Channel uh, 4 should be privatised, I think we're saying like 97% of people. (laughs) Uh, Not because nobody actually, even some people who might like to be sympathetic to privatisation in the end couldn't make the argument. Yeah. Uh, remind me of Mrs. Thatcher trying to introduce advertising on the BBC, pushing in Professor Alan Peacock, who was a like-minded person, to basically you know, do the report that would deliver it. Yeah. And he came out and said, I'm terribly sorry. No, it won't work. The advertising industry are absolutely against advertising <laughs> absolutely. on the BBC. would destroy things. Uh, Stuart, we've got to bring this to an end. I want to say how generous you are, because, I mean, I first, I suppose, met you when we were both discussing the future of Channel 4 News and uh, they appointed you to run it, not me, and you did a brilliant job of it. Um, but uh, you've, at various times, come up against the brute force of the BBC. You very much wanted to push forward your own ITB 24-hour news service and so on, and you saw how, you know, you your investors put money at risk and the BBC came in. So you've always been a... Um, had plenty of reasons to... Uh, be as if you like uh, not taken away by by the BBC's PR, but um, uh, I, but you now seem to be one one of the best defenders of the BBC we've met. What would be your message now be to Tim Davy about how he should play not not the individual cuts, but how he should try and start the debate about the future of public service broadcasting? Presumably, you think I hope you think like me that what we don't care about is just the survival of the BBC. We care about the survival of a BBC, which is a public service broadcaster and part of that wider environment. Well, I would hope that with the um, departure of Richard Sharp as the chairman of the BBC, Tim Davey will be free with the next chair, whoever it may be, to work out their agenda for debate to take account quite properly of the government's view, but not to be on their knee to the government's agenda of the day, which I think is close to what the BBC has been uh, in recent months, uh, at least in policy terms, if not in on the air terms, in, the, in, the, in what they perceive to be what the government wanted them to do about impartiality. I think that uh, you know, Deborah Turnus, who, who worked with me for many years at, at ITN, is an excellent appointment as the chief executive of BBC News, and I'm sure will do a good job. But I, fe- I feel that she has needed more support at the top table of the BBC in, in, in being robust uh, 
in, in seeing of some of the attempts to take the BBC down a various avenue on impartiality that it probably didn't want to go down. And if asked, would you serve? If the new... <laughs> no? Have you finished with all of that? I mean, Michael, grade 79, is law older than you. I know, Are you no, writing definitely. yourself out of all of this? Uh, I'm ab- absolutely, Roger, absolutely. I, uh, you know, I've, I've got to get to Brentford at the weekend for the game, so that's my priority at the moment. Well, Stuart Purvis, I hope we'll hear from more from you in the terms of what we've been talking about. But thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. Cheers. And that's it for this week. That was quite an interview. Please do support our journalism. Uh, it won't take you long. It's less than £2 per month, which also gives you access to a weekly newsletter. You can find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you'll also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. Uh, sorry we have not yet brought you that interview with ex-BBC Director General Tony Hall, but it is in the offing. Diaries are just being sorted out. I'm going to be away for the next couple of weeks cycling in Portugal, but we still have some interesting interviews lined up to fill that gap. I shall return re-energised and hopefully undamaged. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.